Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven, for their pine and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as, there never, uh, such as had never been seen since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Amen, and may God give us understanding in his word. You probably realize that by, uh, by now that two significant events in the Old Testament, the Exodus and the Babylonian captivity, are alluded to or indirectly referred to in the book of Revelation. 
For example, we've seen in my last message that Babylon the Great will fall, that God will judge her as he did with Babylon in the Old Testament who took his people into captivity. Babylon in the book of Revelation refers firstly to Rome. We've seen that. Rome who oppressed and persecuted the people of God during the time of John. And then Babylon secondly and ultimately refers to Babylon as a symbol of the world. The world in its opposition, the world in its hostility against God's people and God himself. It represents all the godless nations and societies and its influence is universal. Verse 8 says it made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. It is the human-centered sensual pleasure that rejects the law of God and seeks to take people captive to it. That's the world of Babylon that's spoken of here in the book of Revelation. And judgment, as we'll see, will fall on our world because the world has rejected God and it has rejected his law. They've turned their back on the gospel and its free offer of forgiveness and salvation through Christ. So Babylon's referred to here in the book of Revelation, uh, the, the Babylonian captivity, but there's another area, another event in history that's also referred to here in the book, and that is the Exodus. And we see it referred to constantly in our text this morning. Yes, Egypt is not mentioned, but the allusion to the Song of Moses and the seven plagues spoken of in verse 1 takes our mind back to Egypt and the Exodus. And again, the Exodus is highlighted in the context of judgment. I say that because the Exodus speaks not only of God's rescue of Israel, but it also speaks about God's judgment, his judgment upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh. And so when Jesus returns, he will not only rescue his church, the new Israel, but he will bring judgment on the unbelieving world, just as he did with Egypt and Pharaoh. Well, chapter 15 opens by telling us the scene shifts again from earth to heaven. John sees what he calls another great and marvelous sign, verse 1, of seven angels entrusted with the last plagues. When John says he sees another sign, he has in mind the first sign which was given to him, that in chapter 12, the, that being of the dragon and the dragon's war against the woman and her child. The text says in verse 1, he saw seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And so the plagues that are mentioned here in our text this morning uh, they are last in the sense that they take place in the latter days. In contrast to the plagues that took place in the former days during the Exodus. So notice firstly as we come to the text, the praise of heaven in chapter 15 or most of chapter 15 and then secondly the judgment from heaven in chapter 16. Well chapter 15 opens by telling us John sees seven angels who will inflict these plagues. But before they do, John is also given a vision of worship in heaven, as he has on previous occasions. 
And so the seven angels and their plagues are interrupted with this worship in heaven. So chapter 1 begins with the seven plagues, but there's an interlude where John sees this worship in heaven and he will come back to the plagues in chapter 16. And those involved in this worship are those who have overcome the beast. Verse 2, those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. In other words, those who have victory in Jesus, those who have conquered through Christ, they are victorious over the beast and the number of his name. And I'm sure you realize that because we've looked at that number 666 and I'll come back to that in a moment. But what's encouraging is with these people who are in heaven worshipping this group in heaven, they represent all God's people who will one day sing his praises and be in worship around the throne. That's what you and I will be doing if you belong to Jesus when you get to heaven. We will be in worship of the Lamb because he has defeated Satan and he's won the victory on behalf of his people. And notice where they sing in verse 2. We are told, standing on something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Now maybe John has in mind the Red Sea mentioned in Exodus, through which the Israelites were saved and the Egyptians destroyed. And so they sing, verse 3, as the redeemed who make up the 144,000, which we've looked at before, representing all God's people who sang in the previous chapter as well. And what do they sing? They sing the song of Moses. Now why do you sing the song of Moses? Well, simply because like the Israelites of Moses' time, they sang a song of celebration, a song of deliverance when they were redeemed or saved from their enemies. And their deliverance from Egypt was the type of deliverance we have in Christ as the new Israel because he has delivered us from the power of sin and the judgment to come. And here the text says they not only sang the song of Moses but they also sang the song of the Lamb. Now why sing the song of the Lamb? This is the only place in the New Testament where this song of the Lamb is mentioned. Well, simply because Jesus, through his death and resurrection and coming judgment, has led God's people in their exodus into their final salvation, which is now realized in heaven. And so they sing the song of the Lamb. And so John, in mentioning the song of Moses together with the song of the Lamb, makes that connection between the two. So let me explain the connection. And in doing that, what John does is that he links the events of the Exodus and the death and resurrection of Jesus. The events of the Exodus through the song of Moses and the death and resurrection of Jesus through the song of the Lamb. Now I say that because the death of Jesus is also spoken of in Scripture as an Exodus. Why? Because if you turn to Luke chapter 9 and read the account of the transfiguration, there in, in verse 31, uh, Luke records what takes place on the Mount of Transfiguration. He tells us that two men, Moses and Elijah, began talking with Jesus. And what were they talking about? 
they were talking about his departure which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And the word that Luke uses there about the death of Jesus or his departure is the word exodus in the Greek. In other words, they spoke about the death of Jesus in terms of the exodus of Jesus. He is conveying the truth that Jesus by his death or Jesus by his exodus in Jerusalem leads us out of slavery to sin and death as the new Israel in Christ. Just as Israel, the old Israel, was led out of slavery from Egypt. And so in heaven there is reason to sing, isn't there? Because our ultimate redemption, our ultimate exodus has been achieved. Jesus through his exodus has freed us and saved us and led us into the promised land. And that's why John tells us about the song of Moses together with the song of the Lamb. And so they sing the praise of God because of their salvation. Verse 3, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you before before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let me ask before we move on, is your heart full of praise to God for what he has done for you in Christ? Do you sing the praise of him who has brought you, who has brought about your exodus, leading you out of slavery and bondage to sin and into freedom? Your response should be one of praise, shouldn't it? As mine should be. God used the praise from the heart of his people who were singing in heaven because in a fuller sense they were singing as they embraced the full reality of what Christ has done on their behalf. And notice in verse 2, they had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. And there too, it's because of what Christ had done on their behalf. The number of the beast, I've said, is 666. And so it's saying that these folk have resisted the beast and have come off victorious. And so they can stand before the throne of God in heaven and they can praise him for his defeat of the beast. And so this is the setting from which we go from the prize of heaven to the judgment from heaven. But before we, do, before we do, notice the names that I use for God. Don't miss that. Lord God Almighty, King of the nations, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. He is the God who is worthy of worship. Your righteous acts have been revealed. He is the righteous God, perfectly righteous in all his ways, in his very being. And now the praise given to God sets the scene for the judgments that will be spoken of in the next chapter. And how does it set the scene? Simply because of what they say about God in the Song of Moses. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. You see, no one can dispute the judgment of God. Why? 
because he is perfectly holy and righteous, verse 4, and true are his ways. And I'll point that out in a moment. So let's look at what it has to say about the character of God's judgment. And then secondly, the effects of God's judgment. And finally, the purpose of God's judgment. Firstly, the character of God's judgment. The context for this judgment that is spoken about in, verse, in chapter 16 is the truth that has been established in the Song of Moses in chapter 15. It's because these judgments come from a God who is perfectly holy and righteous in all his ways. Notice how that's highlighted. Verse 4, your righteous acts have been revealed. Verse 5, you are just in these judgments. Verse 6, you have given them blood to drink as they deserve, speaking of the justice of God. And verse 7, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The judgment that is to come upon the unbelieving world comes from a God who is holy, righteous, and judge, and therefore they are judgments which an unrepentant world deserves. Just and true are your ways. In other words, friends, God's judgments are consistent with his justice. They are consistent given the way we have sinned against him. And that's why the song says, his ways are true. Because God will always act in a way consistent with his nature. God will always act in a way consistent with his being. He cannot do anything outside of it. Look at chapter 15, verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now why does he say all nations will come and worship you? Surely we're talking about the judgment upon nations of why will they worship God? In which sense will they worship God? Well simply because he's speaking here about the end of the age when Jesus returns and everyone will acknowledge that uh, will acknowledge God for who he is. That is the sense in which they will worship God. For example, Romans 14, 11, the Lord says, Every knee will bow before me, and every tongue acknowledge me. So it's not saying that all nations will worship in the sense that every person is saved. That cannot be, can it? The phrase, all the nations, is a figure of speech, a figure of speech emphasizing the acknowledgement that will come from the nations that God is who he is. So there is a day coming when every knee will bow. Those who are unsaved as well, the nations, and they will acknowledge the God of heaven, the creator and the redeemer of his church, his people. And so given all this, what should our response be? What does it mean for you and I to worship God based on his holiness, for example. How does this holiness of God inspire us to worship him? My mind is taken back to the prophet Isaiah. When Isaiah was confronted with the holiness of God, what was his response? He said, woe is me, I am undone. 
When he recognized God's holiness and glory, he was immediately overcome with the weight of his own sin. He realized the depth of wickedness in his own heart. All this from a man who is about to become a prophet. As far as we know, there is not one word recorded of his, of his in the Bible that is sinful. Compared to the, all the people around him during his time, he was holier and more righteous than most, if I can put it that way. But you see, he didn't become complacent in this. Being granted a vision of God, he came face to face with himself and he didn't like what he saw. He knew that he was full of sin. He was overwhelmed by it. And so he cries out, Woe is me, for I am undone. So one of the benefits of worship of this holy God is that we see ourselves as we are. We recognize our sinfulness and we plead his mercy and we plead his forgiveness. We live our lives in worship of this God. Our lives are laid bare before him. We live before the face of God, in the presence of God, seeking to glorify and to honor him. And in doing that, like Isaiah, we recognize our utter sinfulness and we plead his mercy and forgiveness. And that's what Isaiah did. And God's response was to forgive him and to cleanse him. He says to him, your sin has been atoned for and your guilt is taken away. What wonderful words to hear from the Lord. Here's a benefit of worshipping this holy God. As we recognize his holiness and we see our sin and we know his mercy and pardon in our lives. And so coming back to the text, the seven angels, they received these seven bowls of wrath and God's judgment is about to be poured out. We're told that the seven angels are clothed in bright linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Where have we struck that before? Chapter 1 and verse 13. We're told that about the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus. And that description in chapter 1 verse 13 is almost identical to how these angels are described here. It's perhaps saying that they are identified with him in order to act as his representatives in carrying out this judgment. And so the seven angels are told to pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath upon the earth. So notice secondly the effects or the nature of God's judgment in chapter 16. To read about the nature and the effects of the bowl judgment is to realize that there is a parallel. You may not remember that far back in chapter 8, 9 and 11. There a parallel with the seven trumpets except that the judgments handed out here in chapter 16 are far more severe, are far more intense than the judgments that were handed out with the seven trumpets. And so we come to the seven bowls of wrath. And these bowl judgments are called seven plagues. Notice also that the, judgment are, that the judgments are reminiscent of the judgment on Egypt. As I said, Egypt and the Exodus is mentioned constantly when the Lord delivered his people from Pharaoh. Let me run through it very quickly. With the first bowl, the people who receive the mark of the beast are inflicted with boils and sores similar to that of the six plagues in Egypt. 
the punishment here fits the crime, doesn't it? Because the people who receive the mark of the beast are inflicted with boils and sores and uh, they are given a penal mark because they've received the mark of the beast. Notice the second bowl turns the sea to blood. That again reminiscent of the first plague in Egypt where the Nile is turned into blood. It speaks of suffering, economic disaster and famine. Notice the third bowl, the rivers turn into blood like the first plague. It speaks of punishment to those who persecuted God's people. And notice that the text says in verse 6, they deserve it. The fourth bowl speaks of the intensity of the sun increasing and the intensity increases so much that the inhabitants of the earth are seared by it and they curse the name of God. The sun sears those on earth. Some people might call it uh, climate change. <laughs> it's far less more than climate change for sure. God punishes the ungodly because of their idolatry. And yet they refuse to repent like those who survived the plague spoken of in the sixth trumpet. Notice the fifth bowl darkens the beast's kingdom matching the darkness of the ninth plague in Egypt. And they too refuse to repent. The sixth bowl is one which has caused a bit of interest simply because this place Armageddon is mentioned. It states that the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. When God judged Babylon through Cyrus of Persia, what happened was they diverted the river and marched into the city on a dried up riverbed. So no doubt the text here is alluding to the time when Babylon or the anti-God empire representing the world system will be destroyed. And there have been numerous interpretations as to who the kings of the east are and where exactly Armageddon is and so on. The kings of the east in verse 12 is referred to as the kings of the whole world. And it's apparent that they will gather for battle because the dragon who is Satan and the beast and the false prophet have inspired them. The dragon, the beast and the false prophet. We've seen them before, this trinity of evil. And here we are told they look like frogs. And they came from the mouth of the dragon, the beast and the false prophet. And they served the dragon in his effort to deceive and destroy. My friends, history is awash with people and nations who have in their mindless struggle looked for and sought after power and fame and the oppression of others, anti-biblical ideologies which reject the gospel and Jesus whom the gospel points to. And here John says the kings are gathered together for war at this place called Armageddon. They are convinced to do so by these three unclean spirits who are as attractive and as intelligent as frogs. They come from the mouth of the dragon, the beast and the false prophet. Verse 13. They persuade kings and nations to pursue their destructive agenda for power and fame and anti-gospel ideologies. And so verse 14 and 16 tell us that this trinity of evil gathers the world's kings for war 
on the great day of God Almighty, to use the words of the text in verse 14, and they deceive by performing miraculous signs in order to gather the kings of the world for battle, that battle which is to take place in Armageddon. Now there's no place called Armageddon. The word here is in two parts, Ha and Megiddo. Ha in the Hebrew meaning mountain or city. And so the name in Hebrew means Mount of Megiddo. However, geographically there is no mountain at Megiddo. Although the Old Testament speaks of the plain of Megiddo, there's no mountain of Megiddo. And those who went with me to Israel a few months ago, we were able to see the plain of Megiddo where those wars took place. Megiddo was the place of some significant battles in history, such as the one between the armies of Judah and Egypt. So Megiddo became the accepted place in Judaism as the place where evil nations would attack righteous Israel. And so we can understand why John portrays Megiddo as the place where the battle of the heathen kings who oppress God's people will take place. And there have been and continue to be a few interpretations about this battle. There are those who see this battle as being the pagan kings arrayed against the church, God's people. The armies of the world against the church of Jesus Christ. Others maintain that the battle is referring to the pagan kings fighting with each other or among each other in what we could say is a desperate struggle to control the whole world. But what God will do, as the rest of the passage tells us, is that he will use these hostilities to bring an end to the two beasts and the dragon and bring salvation to his people. And so this final power struggle will coincide with the great die of God Almighty. And so Revelation highlights this final battle prior to the return of the Lord Jesus. And given that verse 15 also speaks of the sudden and unexpected return of Jesus, I guess it seems difficult to not conclude that this great day of God the Almighty is referring to the return of the Lord Jesus to wrap up this world. The day when he will come to destroy evil and claim his bride, the church. And that's what the rest of the passage speaks about with the seventh angel and the pouring out of his bowl in verses 17 to 21. And if you read verse 17 to 21, you'll realize the terrifying picture for those who refuse to repent. And in the midst of cosmic destruction, verse 21 says, people curse God because of the severity of his judgment. So this marks the end of divine judgment. And the voice of God is heard from heaven saying, it is done. It is accomplished. It is finished. And so notice thirdly. Oops. Can you bring that slide up again? Thanks, Colum, uh, Callum. Notice thirdly, by way of application, the purpose of God's judgment. Why does God judge people? Ever thought about that? Because in speaking of the purpose of God's judgment, it would be true to say that his judgments throughout history 
and the judgment that the balls refer to here in chapter 16, they are all designed to bring people to repentance. It's not because God hates people and he wants to see them destroyed, not so. It's because he wants people to turn to him in repentance and in faith. Yes, if you like, even to scare them into the kingdom of Christ. When we read of judgment in scripture, it's designed that people repent and turn to God. And so in speaking of the final judgment here in, this, in, the, in the text, we can say that the purpose of this being recorded in scripture is that people will come to Christ. They will come to God through Christ and they will repent and escape the judgment. The reason for this passage is not so that we can spend time expending our theological faculties trying to work out who the kings of the east are and who are the nations who will gather uh, together for the battle in Armageddon and so on. And many have tried to do that over the years. Uh, much ink has been spilt over it. But you see, the fact that the text doesn't give any indication as to who they are means that any attempt to name them is mere conjecture. Rather, the reason or purpose behind God's judgment is so that those who read about it, those who hear about it, like you are this morning, you will realize that there will come a day when time will run out. The day when the Lord Jesus will return, and when that happens, it will be all too late to repent and turn to him. You see, people need to know that God is not some sort of softy who will send everyone to heaven based on his attribute of love and kindness. Yes, of course he is a God of love, but he also is a God of justice who will repair people for their sin unless they repent and come to his son. And all too often people don't want to talk about judgment, including preachers. Leave alone, consider the prospect that they will face it one day. Verse 21 tells us that people curse God in the light of it. You know, their Santa Claus theology, where they see God only as love and compassion, will not permit them to believe in a God of justice and wrath. And that's the reality of it. And we see it ever so clearly from the text. And this is not just John's theology or one man's view of God, far from it. Jesus himself, uh, Jesus himself speaks of judgment in no uncertain terms. The Apostle Peter and Paul also highlight the fact that the day of judgment is coming. Listen to Paul. God commands all people everywhere to repent for he has appointed a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, the man Jesus Christ. And so the only way you can escape this judgment, my friends, is to know Jesus Christ in the reality of your life, to put your faith and trust in him and follow him. So do you know him? Do you know him as Saviour and Lord? I cannot, ex uh, I cannot assume that because you're seated here in the church that every one of us here knows the Lord Jesus. I pray that that might be the case. But I can't make that assumption. So do you know him? Because if you don't, you need to come to him. Or else, if you pass from this life or he comes before, you will face the wrath of God because you've heard the gospel and if you don't repent, then he will hold you responsible. 
It's not easy, you know, to preach this stuff. But there is another reason and purpose behind this judgment. Look at verse 5 and 6. It says, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. In other words, another reason or purpose for this judgment is that God will vindicate his people. God's people who were made to suffer at the hands of those who hide Christ and the gospel will, on the day of judgment, be vindicated. You know, when we hear of the persecuted church and the horrific things that are taking place in some parts of the world to our brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, we pray, we cry out to God for them. We've done that from this pulpit. But you see, all too often there seems to be no answer and evil seems to triumph. But you see, we need to recognize as God's people that the Lord works according to his timetable. We would like to see swift retribution on those who persecute God's people. But God buys his time. He will bring judgment and vindication in his time. If not in this, this life, then on the day of judgment, when his wrath will be poured out on those who shed the blood of his people, the persecuted church. So don't despair, my friends, when you want the enemies of the gospel brought to justice and nothing seems to happen. When it seems that evil triumph, God will vindicate his people. He will judge all those who hate his name and seek to frustrate his purposes through pouring scorn on his church, not tolerating Christian principles, leaders and rulers of nation who seek to persecute his people, seek to pass laws that are designed to frustrate Christians in their endeavor to live for Christ, in their endeavor to teach their children the things of Christ at the risk of being put into prison or facing a fine and so on. And I'm sure you realize what I'm talking about. His judgment brings vindication for his people. And then the final purpose or reason for this warning and this judgment is designed for the people of God, for you and me, the church of Jesus Christ. Now, why do I say that? The, if you look at verse 15, it's like an interlude between the judgment that's taking place. Because here Jesus speaks and he says, Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. In other words, this judgment is highlighted for God's people as a call to alertness on the part of Christians. Here is a word of exhortation for you and me, the people of God. Jesus speaks here and calls on his people to stay alert. He's calling on us to live life with a sense of expectancy, live life in the light of the coming of Christ, to look out for his coming and our meeting with him, either in death or if we are alive at his coming. John in the Greek here uses the word ekomoi, and he does so, he puts it in the present tense. And he's literally saying, I am presently coming. 
That's what the text is saying. I am presently coming. In other words, his arrival is so imminent that we are to think of him as being already on his way. To be prepared at all times to meet the Lord simply because we could be called home at any time or he could return at any time when we least expect him. And that's why he compares his coming to being like that of a thief. To be spiritually dressed at all times, as the verse highlights, by living with a heart of repentance and faith. To not drift along in life, but to make our lives count for Jesus Christ. To live in Jesus and for Jesus, so that we will not be spiritually naked and shamefully exposed on the day of judgment. Remember the words of Jesus to the church of Laodicea? Because Laodicea was lukewarm. And Jesus says there's nothing worse than being lukewarm. You either should be cold or hot. And because you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. And then he says, buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. So my friends, put on the Lord Jesus. Be clothed in him. Walk in step with him. Walk to a different drumbeat to that of the world in which we live and you will know his saving power from this horrific judgment that awaits those who don't know Christ in the reality of their lives. And that's the promise for those who are in Christ Jesus that they will be spared from judgment and not suffer the wrath of God. Why? Because Christ took our punishment. By his grace we are not objects of his wrath but of his mercy. Paul says in Romans 5, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him? Jesus bore the wrath of God on our behalf. As we read of his wrath being poured out on the earth, may each of us turn to Christ in repentance and in faith. Repentance because our sin is an offense to God. Fight as we seek to walk in obedience to his word and live our lives immersed in his grace and mercy. We are to live lives that says thank you to Jesus for what he's done and which reflect the gratitude in our hearts for his saving work. So each time you go on your knees to in prayer, tell God how thankful you are for what he has done for you. The seven bowls has brought to us one dramatic judgment upon another and we will escape them or we will be the recipients of them. So what's it going to be for you? I close with, the quote, with a quote from John Walwood in his commentary on Revelation. Listen carefully to what he says. He says, though we are not able to immediately understand all the details of these dramatic judgments, the unmistakable impression of the scriptures is that the whole world is being brought to the bar of justice before Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is no escape from divine judgment except for those who receive the grace of God in that day by faith in Jesus Christ. The utter perversity and depravity of human nature which will reject the sovereignty of God in the face of such overwhelming evidence, confirms that even the like of fire 
will not produce repentance on the part of those who have hardened their hearts against the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord our God, we have just considered some serious stuff here and we recognize the immensity of what the Lord Jesus has done to free us from judgment. And so we praise you and thank you with hearts that are filled with thanks. Because as we look at our lives in the mirror of your word, we see the ugliness of our lives. And yet we see Jesus, the one who has paid the price for our sin. And so we rejoice in him as we leave this place this morning. We rejoice in all that he's done for us and he continues to do for us because we know that all the spiritual blessings are ours in Christ and they are poured out upon us day after day. And so, Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.